1: A listener production. Hey, I'm pro surfer and mental health advocate, Kuba Chapman, and this is Good Humans. Imagine when you were growing up at high school, if you spent half of the year in America and half of the year in Australia, having to juggle in and out of friendships, juggle in and out of your schooling and just have to juggle being an absolute top talent in your sport, winning world titles from a very young age. That's exactly what my good friend Corey Tunison had to go through. So let's dig right into this episode. He has a great story to tell and I'm excited for you to hear it. Welcome to the podcast. Corey, how are you? Good, mate. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's nice to finally sit down. It's been a long, probably... I reckon we've probably known each other for six months and I've kind of said from the very first day we'll do a podcast one day, but here we are sitting down for your first podcast. So nice
0: to be here with you. Finally doing it. Nah, it's crazy to think that um, we've only known each other for such a short time. I feel like within the last six months, we've both grown to such like such a true and raw friendship and like I feel like I've known you for a lot longer than six months, which is why you're here on the podcast today because I've learned a lot from you the last six months and I'm ready
1: to dig a bit deeper into what's got you to the point where you are right now in your life. So take me back to early day, Corey And Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? And what was life like back when you were a grummet?
0: Yeah. So Brisbane boy, born and raised, um, always grew up in Brisbane. And I guess uh, for me, I was always near the water. So um, I grew up on the river. My old man was actually in the water skiing when he was younger. So, uh, when myself and my brother came along and got passed down, it was pretty quickly. Then, um, the fact that we lived like so close to the water, was just so natural. So I first stepped on a ski when I was three years old, wakeboard when I was four. And yeah, I guess I'd never really stopped since. So it's pretty crazy to think. Yeah, it's um pretty wild to think you're in the water at such a young <laughs> age and to be on a wakeboard
1: behind a boat at four years old is probably something not many people can say they've done. And it's a funny sport wakeboarding. A lot of people don't actually get the opportunity to do it because getting behind a boat is a pretty special thing. I've been lucky enough to go out with yourself quite a bunch the last six months, which has been really cool and really eye-opening to see how talented you guys really are. But let's go into the wake career, being a young kid, getting behind a boat, enjoying yourself when does it transition into a bit more of a competition side of things? And when do you start realizing that you're
0: potentially destined for a big career in wakeboarding? So I guess um, I'll throw it right back to the beginning, really. So I first stepped on a wakeboard when I was four. um, And I was really lucky to be in the situation that I was. So my family always had a holiday house up at Somerset Dam. And for anyone that doesn't know, that's sort of a dam out Northwest of Brisbane and one of the best places in the world. It's, it's my little special place in my heart, you know, but there's a little ski village out there. And when I was growing up, we had, I think there was maybe five or six households growing up, sort of learning how to wakeboard and wakeboarding was so new back then too. So we were all learning together and we were all sort of trying to progress at the same pace. But for me, I was lucky enough to be the youngest one of the group. So I kind of just, I kind of wakeboarded because everyone else did. Everyone was older than me. They were cooler than me. I wanted to be like them. They were always sort of a step ahead of what I was. So then everything sort of like trick wise or whatever it was that always was able to get passed down to me just because I was younger than them. I think I first competed when I was about six years old, just sort of in the grassroots arena, sort of just in Queensland. And that sort of fell from that little ski village. We're all like starting to wakeboard and they were like, all right, well, there's these events that get run every month. Let's go try that, you know? So started there, then that sort of led into the state titles and then that led into the national titles in Australia. And then I had an opportunity to go to America when I was about nine years old, I think, I think and competed in the little grommet division and under nines and ended up taking second at that event, which was pretty crazy considering I'd only been competing for a few years. But so that was sort of my introduction to competitive wakeboarding. And then obviously had age on my side and just kept progressing and progressing. And uh, I first saw Spent like a proper amount of time in the States when I was 13. So when I was 13, I went and spent a month and a half over in Orlando, Florida. I stayed with a family over there and they took me in and looked after me and pretty much rode like a hundred times a day and um, just was a little grommet living away from home. Once again, I thought it was normal. It was just my upbringing and I was thought it was completely normal. Now that I look back on it, I was like, damn, that's crazy. Like (laughs) I couldn't imagine what my parents would be like sending a 13-year-old kid away from home, like halfway around the world, you know. But I was still very young and I still didn't understand it at the time. But I grew a lot in that year looking back on it. And then it was really when it was the following year. I was 14 and I got to spend three months in the States. And my brother had spent... Uh, the full season he'd spent six months over there that year I think it was really when I got given that opportunity to spend a little bit more time overseas and I was like hang on like if I'm doing this I want to make it worthwhile and I really want to give it a red hot crack and I think it was that three months that I spent away from home that I was like all right let's let's give this a go yeah it's, <laughs> it's
1: so wild to think like 13 fourteen's like what, year eight and nine at high school, like still early years of high school when people are starting to grow as adults and starting to kind of work out their place in the world and you're getting sent to America without parents for three months at a time. Like it's wild, like you said, looking back at that, it must be great, a trip thinking about it. But for anyone listening, I've spent a bit of time with these boys, with Corey and Harley. He's uh, what? He's one of his biggest competitors, but another great friend of our best mates up here. And they've both kind of explained to me that they're in the States for majority of their weight career, really, the United States has a far bigger wakeboard community, a far bigger industry in Australia, although it seems to win all the world titles, has a far smaller group and a far smaller industry. So that's why the boys spend so much time over there. But let's chat about your development at home. When you're home over, I'm guessing summer with your brother and your dad, what was that environment like growing up pushing yourself you mentioned your brother a few times that he's obviously it wasn't pro wakeboarder as well what was that relationship like growing up in that let's say like 12 to 17 years old when you're both starting to get really good and starting to probably compete against each other when you're 15 16 17 what's that relationship like and what's the relationship like with your dad building your guys skills
0: every relationship has its ups and downs whether it's family or whether it's personal or whatever whatever relationship it is, it's, it's a working relationship, you know? So growing up myself and my brother had the best relationship ever. Like I wouldn't change it for the world. We would travel in the world at such a young age, living the craziest life, like living the dream, essentially, like get to go away from home, get away from the parents. Like it was just so, it was so cool, like unbelievably cool. And we were super close and we pushed each other and, we cared for each other and it was just a very very positive place to be and then i remember the first time i beat my brother in an event and everything just hit the fan
1: <laughs> how much older is he and how old were you when you first beat him
0: so he's 3 years older than me and i think i would have beat him when i was 13 so he he like he'd spent some time in the states and he was putting in all the work and then I was just this young Grom coming up and just sort of starting to beat him. And yeah, he definitely didn't like it, you know, but, um and then it turned into like being very, very competitive. And I think we both grew as sort of athletes, but more importantly, as people from that. And when we look back on it now, like we're so much, like I thought we were close when we were growing up. We're so much closer now, so much closer now. So I always had my brother to fall back on. Like he was, he was always on my side, but what a lot of people don't know about myself was I actually didn't really want to wakeboard when I was younger. I always wakeboarded because I was the youngest of the group. Everyone was older than me. Everyone was cooler than me. Like I was just doing it just because they were cool and that's, that was the thing to do, you know. And then that sort of transitioned to uh, myself and my brother going out on the boat a bunch with my old man and the relationship between my old man and myself when, we, when I was younger was pretty hectic. <laughs> I was a pretty stubborn kid <laughs> I didn't I didn't take much shit from from dad really there were times where I'd actually like refused to go out on the boat just because I generally knew how that afternoon was gonna play out and it was just gonna play out in arguments and I would, like the amount of times I got kicked out of the boat and had to swim home man was crazy like <laughs> so crazy but what I ended up getting to was... I ended up just throwing myself out of the boat. Cause I was just like, nah, like I can't deal with you. I'm done. Like I just grab a jacket, jump off the boat and see you later, I'll meet you at home. Like, so myself and my dad were like, we were always at it, always at it. But I think I, now that I look back on it again, I think it's because dad always knew that there was a talent within me that he could see. And when he was younger, he never really had the opportunity to chase his water ski dreams and when we came along he sort of told himself he was like I'm giving my kids every opportunity that they can possibly have to succeed or not succeed or whatever the outcome was he was always there for us but he knew that there was something deep inside me that I couldn't see at the time and he was very aggressive in the book. Not like when I say aggressive, like verbally, he he never touched me or anything like that. No way. Um, But we just always end up in arguments, man, always. And it was all for the greater good for sure. But as a young kid, I was just like, nah, like I just don't want to deal with it just because it wasn't fun. And when you're young, you just want to have fun and enjoy yourself because that's, what life is to you.
1: It's so interesting you say that. I feel like there's so many stories in successful athletes that have had that kind of parental push, but almost looking back and I'm sure I've kind of spoken to you about it. You look back and you kind of like can look at it through a different lens and like respect what they were trying to do. And at the end of the day, it's all for us. Like I remember a time I lost in a surf comp at Newcastle. I would have probably been 14, probably 13 or 14. And my dad's like my biggest fan and my biggest supporter. And <laughs> I lost in the event. I think I made like a stupid mistake, something I'd done like time and time again and I lost and I was so pissed off and he was so like, pissed off at me for doing the same thing again. And I remember we got in the car and did not say one word to each other from Newcastle (laughs) to Sydney, like two hour drive, didn't say a word. And I stormed in the door to my mum and my mum's just like, what happened? Like, what'd you do to him, Dave? And I'm just like, (laughs) like, I know
0: that all too well.
1: (laughs) Anyway, we'll keep going with your story. But what I'm just trying to say, it's, Interesting, do you hear the stories of like people who are like, oh, we we'll let them do whatever they want? You don't hear that many kids that are super successful like that. Like, you do need that bit of accountability from your parents sometimes if they're going to put in the time and effort to help you succeed and then you don't respect that. And I think that's where those arguments <laughs> generally come from with kids and parents in sport. It's like, oh, give me a break. So it's, it's always a bit of a push and pull.
0: 100%. And it's funny that you just said the word respect because that was like the one thing my old man drilled into myself was just, well, myself, my brother was, uh, he just wanted us to respect everything, whether that was our relationship or an object or the boat or someone's time or a conversation, whatever. Like even still to this day, he's just drilling respect. Respect to him is the biggest thing. And that was probably the one thing that got him pretty angry when I was younger I was just a young bratty kid like, yeah. Yeah. and
1: that's just him being true to his values like if you're exactly. disrespecting that and you can look back at it now as an adult and be like oh I, there's probably times where I deserve this shit that I got 100% but <laughs> like, I
0: do not like I don't argue with him at all like yeah. I definitely needed it and now looking back like our our relationship is so much stronger now than what it ever would have been because we had, we got like, we got to each other's edges. Like we knew what set each other off and we love each other more because of that.
1: Mm. That's beautiful. It's, It's good to see. And I know I've spoken to you quite recently about your relationship with your dad now and how it's kind of shifted and a few things have changed, which is really cool to see and know that, yeah, those relationships are always repairable and not that it got to a point that was super bad, but it's just good to acknowledge that, as any young athletes listening, like respect when your parents are trying to give you time and effort and like be appreciative of it. Cause I wish looking back, I was more appreciative and showed more gratitude to my parents when I was younger. So Oh hundred percent. And tip. even
0: <laughs> even if you don't realize it at the time, like yeah, it is really important for sure. But I was I was also lucky too. Like I um my parents split up when I was uh at a pretty young age. So I always had two completely different ends of the spectrum. So my old man was like very heavily invested in the industry and in the sport and was pushing um, pushing us pretty heavy. And then my mum wasn't. My mum was just a mum, you know. So didn't matter what happened on the boat. I could always go to mum and like just completely forget about wakeboarding and completely zone out, completely forget about what argument that me and the old man had. So I think it was – a really good thing that I had two ends of the spectrum. So it wasn't just bang, 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 bang of the same thing. Like I I was able to get away and I was able to switch off and that was super healthy for me.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that. How important was that relationship with your mom? getting to not escape that wakeboard realm but to have that switch off and have that person there that you could lean on to have that sort of comfort zone?
0: Super important. It's it's a must, you know, and I – Um, I didn't realize it at the time, but it's so important to have an outlet Well, in a, um, in the, like in a sporting industry anyway, like sport can be a lot. It doesn't matter what sport you're into, but if it can be a lot and you need an outlet to be able to switch off and get away from your given sport that you do or your given craft and every individual is different, you know? And when I was younger, my switch off was going home to mom and forgetting about wakeboarding and just wiping it off. And then the next day it was a new day. And then I go out on the boat, whether it be a good set or a bad set (laughs) or whatever, like it didn't matter because I was just able to come home and switch off again and just completely forget about it. So it was super, super healthy.
1: Let's talk about the year that you won your first world title, the injury you were carrying and what that whole year was like winning a world title.
0: Yeah, So interesting year. I'd had a couple of years. Well, I first first turned pro at 16, I think. And then um, my rookie season was really successful. I didn't win the overall title, but it was a really successful year. I had a lot of momentum coming into the year. I think a lot of people on tour um, sort of predicted me to do well, but I was in a position where, and I can't like, it's kind of nice to be a rookie because you have nothing to lose. Every single event that I went into that year, was like, it didn't matter if I came last because everyone respects, well not respects, everyone expects a rookie to come last but if you win the event, you prove everyone wrong. So that season for me was so much fun. I didn't care. I was still young, like 16, traveling the world all by myself, partying, enjoying myself, like training a bunch, um, living the dream, you know, winning, like winning a couple events. I won a few events on like in my rookie year. And um, that was a really successful year for me. And then the next year, I saw like a slight decline in my performance again. And, uh, but it wasn't like anything drastic. And then my third year on tour, I was really where I saw a decline in my results. And I felt like I was just beating a dead horse and was training and wasn't, uh, wasn't seeing any results. And I sort of, it really took the off season for when I came home after a pretty unsuccessful year where I just partied a bunch and just like went out and got caught up in that scene. And which is like completely normal for an 18 year old kid, you know, like you just, you're finally legal here in Australia. Like you're in the top let, five in the world at your sport, probably getting paid good money traveling without parents. like Let me out of the bag, yeah, you know, let me go crazy because like sports not doing what I want it to do. Like let me, be a normal kid. I want to get away, you know? So I probably like I partied pretty hard. Well, well, well pretty hard. So like I partied like to... a normal kid for yeah. like four months, you know? Yeah. Um, And then it wasn't really until like after like that three, four month period, I was like, what am I doing, man? Like I grew up my whole life wakeboarding, competing. And then I just felt so lost. I was like, what, like, I haven't strapped on a wakeboard in forever. Like I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And it wasn't until that point in time where I was like, all right, I asked myself, like, do I want a wakeboard? And I was like, yes. Okay. Why do I want a wakeboard? And sort of rediscovered why I wanted to wakeboard. And I started wakeboarding for the right reasons rather than the wrong reasons. And I think ever since then, that's been the biggest shift in my career and it really sort of took it to a point where I was super confident coming into one season and I was riding the best I'd ever ridden and life was good again. I wanted to wakeboard and everything was positive. And then coming into the first event of the year, probably two weeks out, had a crash and sort of hurt my shoulder a little bit and got it checked out while I was in Oz. And the doctor said there was nothing wrong. It was just a little strain. I was like, sweet, all good. Anyway, so the first event for the season is always in Melbourne. So that's always my um, season starter. So I just made that event. Uh, I think I won the event and then headed to the States And I remember one day I just like felt off and like had no energy and felt like I just needed to go out and have a training session, even though that I didn't, wasn't really feeling up to it. Anyway, ended up having another crash, hurt my shoulder again. So after what had happened in in Australia, I was sort of felt the same. So I was like, all right, nothing's wrong anyway. So just kept pushing through. Two weeks later, hurt my shoulder again. I was like, all right. Same thing, whatever. Long story short, I completely torn my labrum to the point where my shoulder was popping out every two weeks. Not good. No. (laughs) Not
1: good at all when
0: you're going for a world title. Yeah, and well, it wasn't really, well, it was because I got my shoulder checked in Australia. I was like, yeah, I'm sweet.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: For six months. Like I blew, like I popped my shoulder out like more than a dozen times within a full six disc months. Okay, where
1: somebody has to pull and pop it back in?
0: No, so because the tear was so bad, nothing was holding my shoulder in place. But nothing was holding my shoulder out of place. So I guess I'll call it lucky. I was wearing a shoulder brace at the time to try and help it. It really didn't do anything. But because Like every time I popped my shoulder out, it would just pop straight back in. So I'd just go pop, pop. And I didn't know what that feeling was. I'd never dislocated my shoulder before, but I was doing it every two weeks. Was super
1: painful though? Like I can imagine being towed
0: behind a boat with your arms on a rope. Unbelievably painful. Crazy. But I just didn't know. I was living in denial. I didn't want to get it checked out. Um, So I was literally living day by day. So I'd go... I'd ride, I'd be coming into an event, bang, pop your shoulder out. I'd sit on the couch for about five days straight and did not take ice off my shoulder for about five days. And then I'd hit the water again. I was like, yeah, my shoulder feels up to it. Sweet. I'm good to go. So I'll start riding again and then bang, pop your shoulder out again. So there were, there were events where like this, this one event in particular was in Germany and I hadn't put my feet, in a set of wakeboard bindings in over a month and i was like well i'm doing good on tour (laughs) like i got like i gotta compete like i can't i was winning the tour like i had to so i traveled to germany and um hadn't ridden over a month and i ended up actually winning that event but i think that was just strictly because i had no expectation myself i was like all right whatever happens happens But So, yeah, I was literally popping my shoulder out every two weeks and I ended up winning the tour that year for the first time that I'd ever won the tour. And I got to a point where I knew what would hurt my shoulder and what wouldn't. I was living on such a high, such a high. Won the tour, like everything everything in life was falling into place. 20 years old, world champion.
1: But you've got a fucked shoulder basically. Yeah, but what, I, I didn't know. Yeah. You know? what's, so the, what's was, the process when you get home then from that year and tour? You win the world tour in America, you
0: fly back to Australia. What's ha- what happens the next couple of months? So, get back to Oz, like still on such a high. Um, probably the best feeling that I've felt in life up till this point. And pretty much as I'd organized like a meeting with a specialist, like as soon as I touched down in Australia and went and got scans done, blah, blah, blah results back. Yeah. You've, you've blown your shoulder, mate. <laughs> um, He goes, and I was like, all right, what's the deal? He goes, yeah, you need surgery. Like there's no other way. Like you need surgery. And I was like, all right, whatever. Still didn't realize the impact of that meeting. Just no, nothing could touch me at that point. I still remember waking up from surgery and going from such a high to such a low within the space of hours. And I woke up, like couldn't move, was in extreme amount of pain and just everything crashed and just was filled with regret and wasn't sure that I made the right decision. And I was just thinking like, well, I won the tour, like how, like surely I didn't need to get surgery. Like at the time, like I just, there was no recovery in sight. It was just that painful, that bad, that low that I just thought that I'd made the wrong decision. And I think what sort of separates that injury from every other injury was like when you sort of get injured, you have the initial injury, there's a low. You have a meeting with a specialist. You get the scans done. You've blown something. There's another low. Let's get surgery. This will help you recover. There's your high. Yeah, you're on your first step that's, forward
1: because you were juggling the injury all year and kind of in denial and like, oh, well, I've won the world title with it. It's not that bad. But now I'm out for a few months because of something that's not that bad. It yeah. was just
0: something so, one, I'd never had to dealt with before and was just so different to the norm that I'd just gone from the highest high to the lowest of lows. It wasn't really until like four or five days after surgery that I sort of started to feel a little better. And I think the athlete mind kicked back in to gear and was like, "All right, what's the next step? What do I, what, what do I got to do? And then I was like, bang, straight back into rehab. And then it was all sweet. Then it was just stepping stones. All right, I got to do this and I got to do this and I got to do that to get back on the board. But initially was filled with so much regret. Getting from that, my life sucks to
1: like, all right, road to recovery. Was there any like specific moment or do you feel like you needed those couple of days to feel like that?
0: hundred percent you need those days. We're only human. We're just to
1: accept it.
0: Yeah, we're, we're human. We're filled with emotions. That's just who we are is- beings. Like we can't escape what we feel on a daily basis. So embrace it, acknowledge it, accept what you're feeling, dissect it, then start to think, okay, what's next? And I think for me as well, acceptance was the biggest thing. I had to accept that I was, that I was injured and all through the recovery stage too. I was like, all right, I had to, I had to accept that this wasn't going to heal overnight and I had to be okay with that and I had to accept every single stage as they came so that then I could move
1: forward. And it must be hard as well. You come in from being world champ to not spending the off-season getting better to try and defend your maiden world title. It's like, is the feeling going in like, I'm just happy to be competing again with my shoulder or is it far out, I want to be competing
0: and winning? It was... Gratitude that I like, I was grateful that I was on the water, mm. and I knew that I did everything in my power to get to that point. So I was just happy to be there, and um, had no like, no confidence coming into the event. Went into the event, going, Whatever happens, happens, like, I cannot control this at all. And um, flew down to Melbourne um, was just hoping to make the final really. And I sort of just wanted to get points on the board so that I could make it up in the American stints. So went down to Melbourne, um, and it was actually the first year that all my family came down. So it was myself, my dad, my mom had come down for the first time to watch me compete. She hadn't seen me compete in years. Um, my brother's wife, their whole family, uh, my manager had flown down. Everyone sort of knew the work that I'd put in to get to the point of just being able to be there. So everyone just wanted to be there to support and um, made the final, was stoked to make the final, competed in the final and it was the first time that I'd put together eight tricks in the last six months. Stuck everything perfectly, fin- like finished competing. And I was sort of walking back to the grandstand area where everyone was. And uh, my little nephew came running up to me and um, gave me a hug and um, sort of congratulated me on competing or whatever. And I still remember like as he as he ran up to me and gave me a hug, I was holding him in my arms and As I was holding jewels, I heard the announcers announce that I had won the event and just straight straight up started crying. Everything, all the effort, everything in life fell into place. I was so happy with who I was, where I was, what I was doing, the people that were... I had around me everything was just so perfect at the time that I just could not control my emotions and just started crying yeah I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it's such a (laughs) such a special story to like hear that six months before you
1: don't know you don't have a date for your surgery you got to wait two and a half months you get that one week call up do everything you can to come back and win like that's got to be one of the most special moments of your life really nothing will beat that Let's talk about relationships just quickly for our last little segment. What have your relationships been like with other athletes getting to hold? I I think being a top athlete, you get to meet so many great people. That's why we're friends. I get like being a surfer and a wakeboarder. I want to talk specifically about one friend who we unfortunately lost last year, a good friend of both of ours. What was your relationship like with Alex Chumpy Pullen? Um,
0: Well here's the thing. So like, first of all, we were best mates. Yeah. Like I, uh, I hung out with him and Elle every day while I was home and I considered them, well, I considered Chumpy a kind of a brother that I never had, but had a brother. (laughs) Um, so yeah, we were the closest of mates, probably a lot closer than what I thought so I would remember being so excited just to come home and just hang out with them again just because I missed them so much while I was away and so we were super close mm. super super close
1: yeah and that's anyone listening this is Alex Chumby and pro snowboarder went world champion in border cross went to the Olympics was a flag bearer and he's a great friend of mine also he was actually going to be a guest on the podcast we were talking about a, um, recording an episode and then Unfortunately, I had a freak accident about a week later in a spear. Well, not even spearfishing, it was just freediving, and unfortunately, some complications. But talk me through that day when you found out that Jumpy passed away. Because I think it's an interesting thing for people to understand how people grieve and how people deal with those shock losses of good friends at quite a young age.
0: I had just gotten back from a big trip to, uh, Connecticut, which is just North of New York or near New York. I think it's North. And we were celebrating, me and my roommate were celebrating the 4th of July, which is the equivalent of Australia's Australia day. So massive, massive day. Americans take everything over the top. So you can just imagine what the 4th of July is to Americans anyway. So had just spent a massive weekend away celebrating the 4th of July and I'd come home was just so physically and mentally exhausted that all I wanted to do was just hop on a flight, get home, not talk to anyone, go lay in bed and pass out. And it wasn't until I got home that night after flying back, I laid in bed and just could not fall asleep. And I was starting to wig out. I was like, dude, like what is going on? Like I was watching Netflix, I was reading books, I was doing everything I possibly could to fall asleep and just couldn't fall asleep. And I didn't know why. My phone starts going off. Nan Baldwin, who myself and Chumpy used to train with, um, I still train with Nam, but we'd organized to link up on a phone call to go over the season. And because at the same time, COVID had just hit. So everything was changing. Everything was changing. I the season was cancelled. I didn't really know what was going on. I sort of was just taking it day by day, and um, we just organised to link up on a phone call just to catch up, like we always do. But he normally, wouldn't call you in the middle of the night. Yeah, no, um, called me at like t- twelve, one o'clock at night. And I was like, oh, like kind of weird. I thought he would have known. <laughs> the time change by now. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> anyway, so I was like, "Nah, screw you, Nam." Like, I'm. Um, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Like, I don't want to talk to anyone. Yeah, like, true, I just, I just wa- you wouldn't. I just want to go to bed. Yeah. Anyway, so I get a text from Nam straight after he tries to call me and go. And the text said, "Hey Corey, I've got some pretty bad news for you. Give me a call." I just figured it was COVID. Because mm. Nam's a personal trainer. Yeah, yeah. Face to face, hands on. I remember right before I left to go overseas, he was like they were freaking out, not knowing what they were gonna do for work and to make money and this, this and that. And my mind just went straight to that. Yeah. Oh, I'm not gonna have a coach when I get home, damn it. Like love Nam. Yeah. Never would you expect yeah. the news you're about to get told, I guess. So oh, I was like, screw it, I'll figure it out in the morning. All of a sudden, my phone just does not stop at all. Different. My probably. brother's calling me. Dad's calling me. Every single person I know starts calling me, texting me. And I've just gone, hang on. Something's wrong. Something's not right. Anyway, so I think I can't remember who I spoke to first, if it was Brad or dad, but he they called me and was like, yo, like, it's not confirmed yet, but Chumpy passed away. And I just, it was just a wave, man. Like just something that I never would have thought that I would have had to gone through at that point in time. But it was also, I never realized how special and how close we were until he was gone. hmm and I think that was the hard part that I never really got to tell him that.
1: Yeah,
0: it's, it's like I remember the day too. Like I grew up,
1: Elodie Chumpy's partner it was like, it still is like a sister to me. She's best friends with my sister. So like the moment that I got told that too, I was just like, wow. I was literally with Chumpy a few days before and I was just like, oh, it's such a, you think those people like, you like yourself, people who are world champion athletes are just bulletproof, but really makes you realize how precious life really is. And yeah, what what was the next kind of stage like for you? Like you're still in the states, you don't have family around you. How difficult was that to grieve in that moment?
0: Yeah, it was. It was hard. It was extremely hard. Um, there's there's positive and negatives that come out of everything, and it's sad to say that in a situation like that, but it's true. There's positive and negatives out of anything. And um, a positive thing that did come out of it was it really made me realize that I have an amazing group of friends that are super supportive. Everyone, obviously everyone at home was lending a hand and doing as much as they could, but especially in the States, like everyone was – there for me, like everyone made themselves available if I needed it, which I'm super grateful for. But also I was the only one going through that over there. I never had a shoulder to lean on that knew how heavy it was. I had shoulders to lean on, but they were just there supporting. No one knew the whole, like, no one knew what I was going through. And I just, like, the whole time I was, I remember just thinking to myself, I was like, nah, like, I can't feel like this because I can only imagine how difficult it would have been for Elle to go through that. And also COVID as well, it wasn't like I could just hop on a plane and come home and be there for L, which was all I wanted to do at that point. All I wanted to do was if it was any other year, any other year. I would have missed any of I could, have, straight away, I could but... have come home. I could have been there in 24 hours and I could have comforted Elle. Mm. But it was just a stockpile of so many different things, and it was just so overwhelming. He taught me so much when he was here and he's still teaching me today. He's still showing me the way. He introduced me to an incredible group of friends. He's still here. Like his, his life still lives on. It's, it's weird. It's so freaking weird, man. But the simple fact is he's still teaching me stuff. Like it's so hard to explain, but it's, The Like where I am now and where I am in my personal life at the moment, I know I wouldn't be as happy and content as where I am without what Chumpy's done for me. Both when he was here and since he's been gone.
1: Mate, it's it's such a special
0: thing hearing you talk about someone who's passed away like
1: that and obviously someone who's so dearly held in your heart. And like you said, his legacy is going to live on forever. And all of us are always going to look after Elodie. She's such a beautiful person. Oh, for sure. They're going to carry on the legacy for Chumpy. But what's some advice that you'd give to somebody being a young athlete, being a world champion coming from Australia in a sport that isn't predominantly Australian? What sort of advice would you give to a kid that's coming up, whether it be sport, academic, anything, who's trying to excel in something where the cards are almost stacked against you?
0: Yeah, well I think um for the majority of circumstances anyway to get to a point that is great and that is not normal a great effort has to be put into that. You know, whether whether that might be resilience or whether that might be at the end of the day you have to enjoy the little things in life. You have to enjoy the little wins. You have to enjoy your friendships. You enjoy life because life is beautiful and we can't take it for granted. But But the sacrifice. (laughs) If we are like, you got to toss everything up, right? You got to look at one, ask yourself why you're doing what you're doing. Two, why you want to do it. And three, what you're willing to sacrifice for it. And if the answer is I'm doing this because I love it and I want to do it and I want to be successful and I'm willing to do anything to get to that point, then you're off. That's, that's on you, you, you.
1: know, That's a great response. I love that. That's our little highlight clip for sure. <laughs> but I will give you one more question. The question we ask every guest on Good Humans podcast Last question for you. What does being a good human mean to
0: Corey Tunison? I'm a big believer in if you expand good energy, good energy will come back to you in any way or any form, whether that might be just being in a conversation and giving everything to that conversation or in a training session or whatever. I'm a big believer in put good energy out, good energy will come back.
1: Very well said. Great answer for the good humans question. A lot of people get very tongue-tied on that one. So <laughs> very looking forward to getting this episode out to everyone. Make sure you like and subscribe this podcast. Leave us a little review. Let us know what you think. Tag us on Instagram. Put us in your stories. We'd love to hear what you thought of our chat. It's been absolutely amazing to get in hang out And let's hang out a little bit more before you head off to the States. So cool. <laughs> <laughs> Good Humans was presented by me, Cooper Chapman. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.